0: If you're between the ages of four to eight, you are excused to kids' club. This morning we're continuing the book of 1 Peter, calling our teaching series Living in Hope. To give you some context for the book, which we've done every week, Peter addresses this letter to a group of people he calls the elect exiles. A people chosen by God living in a country that is not their home. And this is true of us also. We, have, we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ belong to him. And yet our citizenship is in heaven. And so we live in this tension of belonging to a God with a citizenship that is far away and yet residing in a place which seems permanent but isn't. We live in a world that rejects our king. We live in a world that rejects our worldview and rejects our values. And so Peter calls us to reconcile all of that by living in hope. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter writes, Praise be to God. That because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, that we who would claim his name, that we are born again into a living hope. That we are born again, we are given a new life into a new hope that is in fact alive because of Christ's resurrection. As we've walked into this series, walked into the book of 1 Peter, we've been calling you to live in hope. In so doing, we are painting a picture, Peter paints a picture for what that looks like for us. So this morning we'll be in the second chapter of First Peter, page 1015, in a Red Pew Bible, if you want to look there. If you haven't noticed, we've switched our bulletins again. Uh, we are back to the green ones. I want to point this out to you for a purpose. Be- you may note on the front of it, it says, building a community in Christ to reach a community for Christ. Seth alluded to it this morning. That's actually the vision statement of the church. We want to orient ourselves to that every once in a while. To come back to this reality that as a church, we want to be a community in Christ. And what does that say? Well, first it tells us that as Christians, we cannot do this life alone. We actually preached on that last week. If you missed it, you can pick up the podcast. Uh, We cannot do this life on our own. We're called into a community but we're called into a community that's expressly about Christ. So we want to build you up to make you about Christ, to make you in Christ, so you would know what he did in the, at the cross for you, and your life would be marked by it. And yet we also want to be call you to reach a community for Christ. That we're not just called to be in a holy huddle, but we're called to gather together, And then to go back out. We see that repeatedly in the Gospels. As Jesus would call his disciples together and send them out. Call us together and send them out. And in this morning's text, Peter is going to give us another good illustration of what does it look like for us to reach a community. If you've wondered, in this section, Peter gives us our mission. So let's pick him up in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. And he starts this way. He says beloved. Now, Peter addresses his audience as beloved, and we're a whole chapter and some verses in. But when he says beloved, we got to recognize immediately that this is not the most common English word. You know, if you're from the South, you might get called lovey. You might get called dear. But rare will be the people who would call you my beloved outside of a pastor. Uh, That happens from time to time. This word is an intense word. It means more than the NIV translation which says, merely dear friends. I like to use J.B. Phillips from time to time, who paraphrased the Bible long before Eugene Peterson did. It was actually in the 50s, and this is how he writes it. He says, to those whom I love, using the word agape. In fact, this word comes from agape. In Greek, it's agapatoi. Those whom I love. It's an unconditional love that Peter has for these people, flavored by the unconditional love of God. So as Peter writes to you, he's telling you that he loves you, but God loves you. It's a reflection of God's love to you, and that becomes a precursor for us. Because as he's going to call us his beloved, he's going to then call us to love people in a way that reflects God's love to them, in the way that Peter is loving you as a reflection of God's love to him, and Peter steps into that. And he gives them two things. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And he keeps coming back to this, doesn't he? Every week, he keeps coming back to this reality that these guys are sojourners. They're exiles. They're living in a land that isn't theirs. He's preparing them over and over and over again to this reality that their values, their beliefs will be rejected by the world. That this is not their home, that the truth that they cling to will be rejected, and that we are literally aliens, not living in our true home. So what Peter does with this, having encouraged them, called them his beloved, reminding them again of who they are, he urges them to do two things. And we have to hold them together, because in Greek this is one long sentence, it's one idea with two parts, so we can't separate them as we walk into these two parts We have two things before us. So let's look at the first part. Peter says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter writes really strongly here, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul And he writes it incredibly strongly. So we have to be reminded immediately that the point of this is not a call to moralism. For following Jesus isn't merely a moral code that we must live up to in order to please God. This sentence does not say abstain from passions of the flesh so that God might love you more. No, it actually calls you as a follower of Jesus Christ to make genuine your lifestyle as a reflection of Jesus Christ. That as Peter writes to his beloved, reflecting God's love to you, that in a sense, your moral lifestyle is a reflection to the world of the God you love. So when he calls you this, he calls you into Christ. As a part of Christ. And a result of the completed work of the cross of Christ. So Peter says... People whom I genuinely love abstain from the passions of the flesh. The word here, abstain, means to hold oneself constantly back from. A couple of years ago, I had a project in my yard. I had about a 110 foot tree that had to come down. It was huge, it hung way over our house. So I spoke to a couple of different people, I had a couple of people come give me bids on this tree. Well, the lowest one we got was $4,000. It's a big tree, and we didn't have $4,000. So when talking to one of my neighbors who said, I used to cut down a tree for a living. I'd love to help you. I took him up on his deal. He charged me $200. Now, there's always a good argument of whether or not you should let a guy pay a guy $200 to cut a huge tree down in your backyard that's like 30 feet from your house. But we were poor and we trusted God, and we went with it. So Pierce and I started to collect the supplies we needed. We went to Lowe's to buy some rope. We needed to buy some guidelines to lay down um, so that we could guarantee the tree would fall in the, wrong pla- or in the right place. And by the way, that's a long story in and of itself that the tree cutting down did not work out well. Um, didn't hit the house, but I've never flown so far in my life. You can get that story some other time. But Pierce and I go to Lowe's to buy rope, and we're standing in the rope section, when the, and Lowe's employee comes along to ask me if I need help. So naturally, I say to him, I'm looking for some good rope to tie a kid to a tree. So naturally, the Lowe's employee and Pierce both look at me strangely. Tell the man, I said, listen, when you've got kids, you need to teach them how to obey, and you'll do anything to teach them how to obey, so I need to find a good rope to tie a kid to a tree. Well, he continued to look at me strangely, and of course, I was kidding. But the principle holds: sometimes you do what you need to do to stop somebody from giving into sin, and sometimes that's you. Sometimes it's you. You do what you need to do to stop giving into sin, and Jesus actually taught this to us in some incredibly strong words in His Sermon on the Mound. when He writes this in Matthew five twenty nine through thirty. Again, in the context of abstain from the passions of the flesh. Jesus writes in Matthew 5, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you would lose one of your members than that your whole body Go to hell. Now, we need to lean into this a little bit because while Jesus was prone to teaching parables, he was not prone to exaggeration. So, what do you do with this? Because I think realistically, Jesus is teaching do everything you can to flee from sin, don't mess with it. Now, having had years of working with college students, it's fleshed it out in different ways. Whether your sin manifests itself with a computer and you need to destroy it. And I've watched a lot of computers be destroyed in my years. Or whether it needs to look some other way. Jesus expressly teaches, if you are walking in sin, it will kill you. And he's not kidding. It's not a hyperbole here. When he says it's better for you to lose one of your members then your whole body be thrown into hell. I don't think he's joking. I don't think he winked. And I'm confident his fingers weren't crossed. Jesus says here literally, we should avoid sin at all costs. And in this case, specifically, the passions of the flesh. So what does that look like? Do we try harder? Are we called just to bear down and white-knuckle our faith? When we're struggling in sin, do we just strive more? Absolutely not. It requires effort, but not that kind. Paul will address this for us quite clearly in Galatians 5, so let's turn there. Galatians 5, 16-25, page 975 in a Red Pew Bible. Paul writes this to the Galatians. He says, but I say, walk by this Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul writes this distinction. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. These words are all related. Desires, flesh, passions, flesh. The idea here in your flesh, in Greek is sarx. It's actually a really dirty word. It's a really gritty word. It's this idea that we have our flesh desires things. It craves things. And so when he writes here, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul writes this dichotomy that we pursue Jesus, we walk in by the Spirit. Again, I'd refer you to last week's sermon where we dig into God's Word and we allow it to be our nourishment, we allow it to be our food, we walk in unison with God, and that walking in unison with God will call us away from the gratifications of the desire of our flesh. Paul says to put away sin, to abstain from fleshly desire, you must walk by the Spirit. And he continues in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. He puts these things in opposition. These fleshly desires that we have that must be fulfilled... These tensions we feel that overrun us versus the Spirit of God who's working within us. He puts them in tension and continues to write, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It continues, but if you were led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then he defines for us quite clearly what the sins of the flesh are. Should you be wondering, makes it clear, Paul writes this, Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Now, we walked through that this past fall. We talked about, we did a whole series called the um, Design and Deception. We walked through sexuality. We looked at this word sexual immorality, which is defined by the Greek word porneia, which has its context It could mean a whole number of sexual sins, not isolated merely to homosexuality, which people like to point at, but to a whole litany of sexual sins, i.e. pornography, masturbation, lust, you name it, we could define it, make us all uncomfortable. Probably already did. He continues on, the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul puts this before us, these places where we put ourselves first, where we put our desires first, when we make ourselves king and we want to rule over everything and we make everything an object for us to consume, we choose these sins And he takes it further, just like Jesus took it further. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he makes it strong. If you allow me to bring clarity to Paul's Galatians, bringing clarity to Peter's letter, we're now going to step into the book of Romans. to to allow the Bible to continue to define itself. And this is what Paul writes in Romans, which will give us clarity in Galatians, which will bring us back to 1 Peter. See, it's pastoral fun at its best. Romans 8.5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And here you see it, you see it played out that it's not the person who does these things, or it's not the person who does these things. It's the person who identifies with these things. Because if it was just merely a person who struggled with these things, make no mistake, we would all go to hell. There is not one of us innocent of anything on that list. We're all guilty of all of it, if we're honest and willing to step into it. What Paul writes here in Romans, hints at in Galatians, and first, Peter points to is that if you identify yourself with these things, Paul's word in Romans, if you set your mind on it, and he continues on, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on things of the Spirit, so what will you be defined by? Becomes Paul's question in Romans. Will you be defined by your allegiance to Jesus Christ, or will you be defined by your desire and appetite for sin? Your desire to be fulfilled through sin or your desire to be fulfilled through Christ. In verse 6, Paul writes, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And what Paul writes in Romans to bring light to what he writes in Galatians is that if you are in a full-on rebellion to God, it will cost you everything. If you are turning your back on God to choose sin, it will absolutely cost you everything. Then Paul goes to the positive in Romans. In verse 9, he continues and says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. We take you back to Ephesians 1 where Paul says that the Word of Christ dwells in you when you hear the Word of truth and you believe it. So if you want to have some trust here that you're in the Spirit of God, the question you have to ask yourself is have you heard the Word of truth and have you acted on it? Have you believed the reality of what Jesus Christ did at the cross for you is your truth, and are you defined by it in such a way that it's putting away sin in your life? He continues in the positive. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are put to death by the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we'll push it back to Galatians, where Paul goes to the positive again, having put out the fruit of the flesh. Now he gives you the fruit of the Spirit. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. A verse many of you probably learned as a child, but we have to actually live it out in our lives in Galatians, what Paul is writing to us is to say that you have to, in our lives, there are two things that manifest itself: sin, which leads to all kinds of our flesh ruling over us, or the spirit rolling over us, which leads to all kinds of fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control that this comes out of us as a testimony to our willingness to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, to let Him rule in our life. it's why he continues in verse 24 to say, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So now let's put it all back together. In First Peter, when he tells you, my beloved as sojourners and exiles, you must abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter is telling you to choose God. To walk in a unique and humble and deep relationship with God the Father that you might put back death. That you might put back sin. Does it call you to white-knuckle your faith No, it calls you to trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ and at the moment of temptation to turn to Him and to claim it as truth. To lean into God the Father and what Peter's writing here for us is our ability to abstain from the passions of the flesh which will wage war against our soul gives us a legitimate testimony to Jesus Christ to our neighbor. What he's calling us in the midst of his letter at 1 Peter, as he's walked us through this last section which we talked about last week of our calling towards being people who are in God's word and people who are in God's community, now he's going to call us out to tell us how do we reach the community And the first place he steps to is to say that we have to be morally legitimate people because it reflects the image of God to our neighbors. Friends, we have to appreciate that your neighbors, your co-workers, your cousins, fill in the blank, watch our lives. So when we say Jesus with our mouth and we live in a way that doesn't equate with what we say, they know it. And worse yet, so do our kids. We've got to appreciate the consistency we've got to strive for. Now at no spot here, no place here, have we started to lean into the fact you've got to work harder. No, it's trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. There's not a call here to perfection. There's a call here to trust Jesus. And there's a call here to let Jesus be at work in your life. But make no mistake this morning, Jesus is calling you out of sin. He's calling you to walk away from sin. So as we work through this passage this morning, one of the questions we'll come to at the end will be this. What sin is Jesus Christ calling you to leave today? What sin is Jesus Christ asking you to give up, to abstain from, to walk away from today? Because if we just hear the Word of God and we don't apply it, we're like a man who looks at our, our face in the mirror and walks away and forget what we look like according to the book of James. Yet we want to be people who read, study, and believe the Word of God, and follow through on it. Then Peter gives us the second part of this one mission. We have to remember that these are tied together. The tension comes is when we try to separate them, and we either try to become morally legitimate people when we don't connect the relational part, or we try to become relational people when we don't collect the moral part. It's one idea put together. It's one mission that Peter writes for us, and that Paul tied together in Galatians and Romans for us. And Peter adds this in verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as Peter is calling you as sojourners and exiles, people living in a land that is not yours Amongst people who do not believe in your values, do not believe in your truth, do not believe in your God, be a morally legitimate person, and as you live amongst them, and Peter uses the word Gentiles, but he's pointing to unbelievers, as we live amongst unbelievers, again, neighbors, co workers, cousins, you fill in the blank, keep your conduct honorable, he writes. And it's a reminder for us that our example is not merely moral, but it's also relational. That we're called into relationships with people. That our example to them, our testimony to them, is not just what we do, it's actually how we interact with them. It's how we treat them. And it's not just that they would see our lives as pure, it's that they'd see our lives as light. And to see our lives as light, what we really have to project is that we're forgiven. And to project that we're forgiven, we've got to be able to own our sin and we've got to be able to talk about a Savior who's big enough to forgive us of our sin, lest we look like we're trying to point out our own righteousness. Friends, one of the many reasons why I say regularly I'm not a perfect person is so that you never get the idea I'm projecting for you my righteousness, which to be clear would get me nowhere. I'm able to tell you I'm not a perfect person because I rest my life on Jesus' righteousness, not mine. Mine gets me nowhere. His gets me everywhere. It's the same for you. That we need to project to people that we are not righteous in of our own accord. We're righteous because Jesus imputed His righteousness into us at the cross. So we are a forgiven people. This doesn't call us to a perfect life. It does call us to a forgiven life. And so as Peter says, live this life out in front of people, not only morally but relationally, so that they would see our lives as light. And again, Jesus teaches this to us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Mount Sermon on the Mount, know the difference. Matthew 5, he writes, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, let your light shine before others what does it say? Others. Let your light shine before others. So I'm all for you praying in a closet, but if your closet is the only place in your house or in your neighborhood where there's light, it's a problem. Live out your light before others so that your neighbors, your coworkers, your cousins, fill in the blank, experience your light. Peter calls this good deeds, Jesus calls it good works, but you get the idea. We love our neighbors, we serve our neighbors, we engage them, whether that looks like us borrowing a shovel, an egg, or a stapler, we love them, and we do it in a way that brings glory to God. Let me illustrate it for you like this. When we moved into our house in Moorhead, I immediately started to making a map of all my neighbors because I wanted to remember their names. Now, problematically, I lost the map. So I've had to go back and re-ask several people what their names are. And there's one guy, I still can't remember his name, and I feel like a moron every time I run into him. So that's my note to remind myself. But one of our next door neighbors is a guy named Steve. He lives next to me. And Steve and I have had a couple of spiritual conversations, but I want to tell you about my relationship with Steve. I don't know where he is with Jesus. But what I do know this is that Steve loves me, and I know that because most of the time during the summer, I come home, and my front yard is mowed, and I don't know why. And I'll notice, and I'll say, Steve, Steve, did you mow my front yard? And Steve will say, well, I was mowing mine. It wasn't hard to mow yours. See, I've never had that thought in my life. See, you thought this story was gonna be about me. Steve loves me in the most unique way. I have never, when mowing my lawn, thought, well, I should just keep going. I've already got it started. It's already got gas. I've already got bags out. This makes sense to me. At no point have I thought about loving Steve that way. Steve humbles me in service. One of the tensions I've got in my life is, how do I love Steve, who clearly has a higher relational goal with me than I have with him? How do I love Steve in a way that serves him and honors him when dude's mowing my yard? I'm not calling you to mow your neighbor's yard, but maybe you should. Or maybe it's taking cupcakes or a cake or maybe it's baking. I don't know what your gifts are, but that people around us, as Peter writes this and makes it so clear to us, that people around us who don't agree with us, who don't believe in our God, who don't believe in our truth, that don't believe in our morals and values, that these are the people we live our light out in front of, that they watch us live. And we serve them. And that's what Peter's talking about when he writes here. And Jesus again teaches us, quoting him from a parable in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So we're asked the question, are we loving our neighbors, our co-workers, our cousins, fill in the blank. Are we loving them like Jesus? Because that's the testimony we're called to. That's the testimony we're called to. And when in John 15, Jesus calls his disciples, John 13, not to love, not the golden rule, love others as you'd have them love you, but to love others as I have loved them. It's where Jesus escalates it to a whole new level. Don't love people in a way you want them to love you. Love them in the way that Jesus loves them. And friends, in this context, Jesus is going to use you as his hands and feet. He's going to use you as the arms to hug the hurting, broken person in your neighborhood. This is Jesus using us that we might be christ to our neighbors. That's why when Peter finishes this, he says, so when they speak against you as evildoers, this means that you're loving the people who don't agree with you. When they speak against you as evildoers, that these people might look at you and say they're short-minded, they don't believe in the truth, how close-minded they are, how narrow they are when they speak against you. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter writes here is that as we look to love our neighbors, we'd be not only morally legitimate, but we'd have some relational integrity to love and serve them. That though they don't agree with us, we love them in such a way that when God visits them, they'll glorify God for you. Now think about that. Think about that, that when God visits one of your neighbors, whether that's when they meet Him for the first time and they come into salvation or they move into glory and face him as judge, that part of their testimony would be you. That's the calling here, that you would be part of their testimony. We used to tell our college students in Memphis that you are the only person in the world that uniquely knows everyone you know. A really crafty statement. But it testifies to the fact that you have no idea how many people that you're around on a regular basis where you are the evangelical believer they know. Where you are the person who knows Jesus Christ. Where you are the person whose life is marked with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Where you are the person who can preach not their own righteousness, but the forgiveness of Christ. So that they might know that they could love a God who would forgive them and not just demand of them. Peter writes that they would see your good deeds and glorify God. Friends, Peter calls us here. He calls us as a group of people paired with last week's message. That we'd be called into God's word. We'd be called into his community. And calvary vernacular that we'd be a community in christ and in calvary vernacular that would be a community in christ to reach a community for christ that we would lead a lifestyle that engages people that loves them and there's a moral and a relational component there and what peter says here in effect is this I'll give it to you in a pithy statement live a holy life that reflects jesus Treat people like Jesus, and even when they abuse you, love them like Jesus. Be a light in the world. Peter calls us, the Bible calls us, Jesus calls us to lead a lifestyle that is radically different from the surrounding culture that would be defined by moral legitimacy and relational integrity, that as people look at us, they would see Christ both morally and relationally. Closing, I want to read you 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. But I want to read it to you from the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Because he does make it in everyday terminology, you'll hear it the way he wrote it. Let me read it to you. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives, so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side, and be there to join in the celebration when He arrives. Friends, as we walk through 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, there are two questions you've got to ask yourself to fulfill this message, mission. One, is there a sin that God's calling you to give up today? And two, are there people in your life that God's calling you towards? Is there a neighbor? Is there a coworker? Is there a cousin? Is there a fill in the blank that God would call you very specifically and very practically to begin loving? Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your son Jesus, and we're thankful for his completed work at the cross. That having believed in Jesus Christ, we are called away from our sin. And To be called away from our sin doesn't require me to try harder or do more, it requires me to believe more in the completed work of the cross, to know that I'm free from slavery, and to trust your son's work in my life, to walk by the Spirit. And to aim at Jesus. Father, that you would make me and that you'd make each of us a morally legitimate person. That what we say equates what we believe. And Father, at the same time, that you would make us relationally engaged. Father, that as whatever neighborhood we live in, in a group, in a room this size, Father, we take up a big part of this city. I pray that our neighbors would know we love Jesus, not just because of our morals, not just because of a teacher. I pray that you would give us the ability to love our neighbors well and intentionally and purposefully, that though they may never agree with us, they'd never be able to deny that we knew Jesus or that we followed him. Father, give us the strength It's only in you and in the completed work of the cross that we can do this. So we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what He did. We thank you that you've called us to live in hope. May we continue to pass on the hope you've given us. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. And would the ushers come?